Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dive into summer with Yumiko's July Ready to Wear collection. Whether you are standing out in your Zoom classes at home or safely in the studio, their new options are here to prepare you for all your summer course needs. In addition to the continuation of the Shop Boutique page online, Yumiko is excited to now bring parts of the New York City store to you virtually through their first series of Instagram Live events. Yumiko will be showcasing exclusive in-store options available to ship immediately with one special leotard offered at a discount and a small gift included with each purchase. Stay tuned for live event details, new releases, and New York City store reopening updates at yumiko.com and at yumiko on Instagram. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today we speak with Austin Hartel, Oklahoma International Dance Festival Artistic Director. Austin was a soloist and co-choreographer with Palabalus Dance Theater, making appearances worldwide and on television. After his dance career, he joined the faculty of University of Oklahoma's School of Dance, where he has coordinated the modern dance program for nearly 20 years. This year was meant to welcome the inaugural Oklahoma International Dance Festival, featuring artists from around the world for performances and student workshops. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced all arts organizations to adapt to these times, and this festival is no different. Now, from July 26th through August 9th, students from all over will be able to participate in their online summer intensive, learning from an incredible list of faculty. Registration is open until July 15th, 2020. For more information and to register, visit okdancefest.org. Thank you, Austin, so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time, and we're very excited for our listeners to hear a little bit more about the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, thank you for having me. I'm excited Absolutely. to be here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, where, where do you want me to start? I would love to start with you at the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about how you first got interested in dance and then about your early training. Okay, um, 
Well, I got interested in dance, apparently, because my mom said I was a very uncoordinated kid. (laughs) So so when I was eight Mm. years old, she took me to take ballet classes. And the first class I took was, it was a class for all boys. It was at the Washington School of Ballet with, you know, Mary Day. So it was a class for all boys. And we took like a ballet bar and then we did tumbling, like rolling, you know, rolling and little tumbling things and stretching. Mm -hmm. So I did that. Um, we moved up to Pennsylvania when I was 13 and for like one year, I didn't take any dance classes. I was, you know, playing sports and, um, but anyway, I really missed it, you know? And so mm-hmm. I came back to my mom at thir- you know, 13 mm-hmm. and I said, Hey, you know, I really want to go back to dance classes. So she found me a studio and that's where like really my, I think real serious training started. And I started studying with a man named Edmund Novak mm-hmm. and his wife, Arina Klovaska, who were both dancers with the Ballet Russe. And um, so studied there for three years. And then I moved from that studio to uh, Pennsylvania Academy of Ballet with uh, John White and um, Margarita de Sa. And they were both dancers with the National Ballet of Cuba and had been teaching at Pennsylvania Ballet and just opened their own studio. And that's where then I really started to just grow as a dancer. Shortly after that, I remember telling my parents that I wanted to be a professional dancer. So my father wasn't very happy about that because I said I was going to quit playing sports and I was just going to dedicate myself to dance. And that didn't Mm -hmm. go over very well with my family. So um, he said that that was fine with him, but then I had to pay for all my own dance lessons and arrange all my own transportation to and from my dance classes. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had a job and I was working. I mean, my days were busy and I would get up and go to school. I'd go to school all day. I'd come home from school and go to dance classes. And I would take two ballet classes in a row every day. My teachers were like, if you want to be a professional, you have to really train. Um, And then from there, I would go to work and I would work till midnight. And I would do that five nights a week. So, I mean, on the weekends, I worked too. Um, so anyway, it was just a lot, but I really, I really wanted to dance. But did that, did that kind of prove to your family, the drive that you had to do it, like that you were willing to go through all of this to continue your studies in ballet? Yeah. I mean, I think it did. And then, um, but really the big, the big change for my parents was, uh, at the age of 16, I, I, so the one thing that the whites did, um, with us was they said like, you need to start auditioning. And so right. they were sending us to auditions. So I lived in right outside of Philadelphia at the time. And at that time it was only $17 to ride round trip on the Amtrak to New York city. Mm. And that was, you know, hour and a half. Right. So I would go take the train from where I lived downtown. I love the East coast public transportation. Amazing. <laughs> I live in Oklahoma. There are zero trans public transportation here. But anyway, um, so we would take the train. We'd take class with like Madame Darvash or Fine mm-hmm. Young or David Howard. You know, somebody mm-hmm. in New York tried to mix it up. And then after class, we'd, we'd go to take audi- go to auditions. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I mean, I auditioned and auditioned and auditioned and didn't get anything. I mean, that was for a long time. Uh, but then there was an audition in Philadelphia for the opera company, Philadelphia's Ballet Company. I went to that audition when I was 16 and I got the job. Mm-hmm. My dad was flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this was in 1976, right? So, I mean, 
and it was a great job. It was a union AGMA contract. Mm -hmm. I was getting paid $250 a week and $50 a week for, for, for performances, which was great money in the mm-hmm. 1970s. So yeah. that turned my dad around a little bit. He's like, oh my gosh, well, you actually might be able to make a living at this. Right, right. From there, if I'm going to go chronologically then. So I worked at that job while I was still finishing out high school. Um, out of high school, I had been offered two jobs. Um, one with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet and one with um, the San Antonio Ballet. Uh, but my father said to me that everybody in the family had to get a degree from college. Mm-hmm. And we negotiated. And so I went to North Carolina School for the Arts. And I was there for three years and graduated. Um, but while I was there, I discovered modern dance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with modern dance and I changed my major from ballet to modern. <laughs> oh, very good. I think it's interesting because you're already, you're going through and even like your ballet training was already so varied. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you weren't just uh, stuck in any one style. Like the people you listed off, it was like you were clearly, your mind was already open to a lot of different versions of this thing that you loved. So yeah. then modern was just kind of the next step in that direction. Yeah. Expanding yeah. your, your love of dance. My love of dance. Yes. And so, mm-hmm. and I just loved, like, it was all new, right. It was all like this new approach and new concepts and, um, which actually really made my ballet better also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I was just wondering if you found your interest in choreography while you were there or did that come later in your career? Um, well, I had, I had an interest in choreography, um, not a, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I mean, we had to do comp classes, right? Right, so I, right. That's I, what I was wondering. Yeah. I learned a lot about choreography. Um, mm-hmm. I would say the most important thing I've learned and something that I hold true to is that, you know, I, I learned that you can actually, anybody can make a good piece of choreography if they follow certain certain rules, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's like there's a craft, there, because there's a craft to choreography, Right. Mm-hmm. Which just like you can learn on the mechanics of being a good painter, right? You can learn the mechanics, but there's the difference then with how everybody applies the craft. And that's the separation between some people who can craft a good dance, but then some people who can artistically create work that is inspired right. using those principles or breaking away from them. Anyway, after I graduated, I, well, I left after three years. Um, I got a job with a mo- small modern dance company in North Carolina. I was blissfully happy actually. And, but the company went out of business and my second year there. And so I went to New York and I had auditioned and I was accepted as an apprentice in the Limon company while I was an mm-hmm. apprentice in the Limon company, I auditioned for, and then I got offered a job with Palabolus. And, um, that was probably, I mean, that was, that changed everything for me. Right. Yeah. Um, you were with them for quite some time, right? You, How long did you dance well, with the company? For five years and then you did work I, with them after? Yeah, I danced with them for five years uh, full time. And mm-hmm. then I sustained a pretty bad injury. Mm. Oh, um, no. So uh, I had surgery and I couldn't dance for eight months. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was, a, it was injury to my wrist. I tore four ligaments in my wrist in the, in the oh. middle of a performance. Um, but I didn't do anything about it because I just thought I sprained my wrist and it was okay. three months. So we were 
performing. We were in a New York season, so we were doing eight shows a week. And one day mm-hmm. I came home and I'd hurt my wrist. And uh, but you know, I just bandaged it up, didn't think anything about it. And, Classic but, dancer. Right? <laughs> you know, like, ah, we're fine. Hurts. I'm fine. <laughs> it, it hurts, but you know, I can still do it, right? Well, right. Months, it, it, it got so bad though that three months later, I was like, "Wow, what's going on?" And I went yeah. to a doctor, and that's when they found out I did that. So. I shopped around because um, the surgical procedures at that time were kind of limited and a lot of people mm-hmm. wanted to fuse my wrists together. And I Oof. found uh, one doctor in Philadelphia who was doing an ex- at that time an experimental surgery and he was mm-hmm. re- using artificial ligaments. And, I, and so wow. I went and got artificial ligaments put in Oof. and uh, I danced with that for seven more years, but not like I he told me that I couldn't really go back to the, the, um, the level of the work that I was doing, like the, right. the physical demand, the physical demand of what Palavos was doing was a little bit too much. So mm-hmm. at, at that same time, I started my own dance company. And so then I could control like how much and what I would do. Mm-hmm. You know? And, um, I, you know, had, was very lucky with my company, uh, just things fell in place and we got an agent and we worked, I worked abroad a lot and we applied for and were accepted to work with the state department. And so we um, worked, it was a program under the United States information agency, which doesn't exist anymore. President Mm -hmm. Clinton dissolved it and it was um, to present American arts and culture abroad. And so we were accepted as a touring company through them and, they sent us on eight tours throughout South America, which was wow. that's so was great. cool. Wow. Palabolas so, toured quite frequently as well, right? Oh, were, were you touring a lot with the company? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> probably uh, so, I mean, an average of like between about 40 weeks out of the year. Wow. I mean, but it was, I think it was such an, I mean, it personally was important to me. Palabolas was one of the first dance companies I ever saw because I lived in Kentucky and you know it's not not a lot of place not a lot of companies were going to come through there but it was an eye opening experience to see like oh wait, okay you can be a dancer as a as an adult and in your <laughs> like as a profession <laughs> so um i mean that must have been a pretty cool thing to be touring even if it if 40 weeks yeah. is a lot but <laughs> yeah no i i loved it i mean it was mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it was hard you know but um it was just a really vibrant time. I have to say the 1980s were an amazing time to be a dancer, mm-hmm. uh, not just in the United States, but in the world. There was, I really feel like that was a renaissance for dance and dance was really, um, it was just embraced everywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I see now I get nostalgic, but not nostalgic. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of sad. I, you, you know, I also get yeah. sad because, you know, at the end of all of this, I went back to school and got a degree, a master's degree, and I teach at a university, and I've been teaching mm-hmm. there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And here I am training young people to enter into the dance profession. And the world that I knew when I was a professional is not, it doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, so the options are different. I mean, I feel like we've gone kind of backwards to what dance was in the 40s. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the sense of in the sense of artists having to be really versatile mm-hmm. and artists not you know it, it's much harder to uh just specialize um maybe more so in ballet you can because there's still a lot of regional ballet companies right. but but 
even there, I think your ability to dance contemporary and to dance modern. And I mean, if you can throw in tap and jazz, you know, and you're in New York and you're freelancing, hey, maybe you can get a Broadway show. Maybe you can right. get a cruise ship. Maybe, you know, maybe you'll get a tour with a company. You know, a lot of companies aren't trying to sustain themselves full time either. You know, that's a lot of pickup work. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, it reminds me like when I was talked to some of my teachers that I've had, um, you know, who were dancing in the thirties, forties and fifties, like, like one of my teachers in one year, right? So this is his one year, right? Mm-hmm. Was principal. He was a brilliant dancer. So was principal <laughs> dancer, principal dancer with the Joffrey ballet. He did their season principal dancer with, uh, uh, American Ballet Theater. He did their season, mm-hmm. and a uh, principal dancer with Martha Graham, and he danced in the original cast of West Side Story all in one year. Wow, <laughs> that is a lot going on. Yeah. Wow, you know. And when you talk to people of that same time period, they all were doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so um, I almost feel like we've kind of gone back to where dancers need to do that to kind of survive almost. Well, when you talk about, I mean, I had never even heard of that um, government funding that allowed you to go on these great tours. I mean, I certainly like the National Endowment for the Arts in the 80s, what the the budget was, I think, more than double what it is now. And when you adjust that for inflation, then it's just like, forget about it. That's like, you know, many, many times over what it is now. So we've just continued to cut back and back and back on that sort of support. Well, and that's had a profound effect. I mean, the the support through the State Department, of course, is different than the support from the National Endowment of the Arts. But Mm -hmm. that does there was a program that the National Endowment of the Arts had during the 80s, which, if I am correct, is is called Dance on Tour. Mm -hmm. And one reason so many companies were working was because they would give presenters like if you were presenting in California, you would get a grant to present companies. But the you couldn't present any local companies. You had to bring companies from other parts of the country that mm-hmm. they were creating. And this is what was so amazing about that time. They were creating this environment that was connecting the country, at least right. for the, for the artists. So we're mm-hmm. all traveling around because like the presenters in New York, were getting money to present companies, but that would be for companies outside of New York, you know? And so right. we're creating this really oh. vibrant culture throughout the whole country right. and all these companies performing all around mm-hmm. and um that ended at the end of the 80s i think it was 1990 was the last or the end of that that program mm-hmm. and a lot of it i think some budget cuts budget cuts budget cuts you know right but I, I think it's it's just it's kind of um i don't know i think that people a lot of times politicians want to um exclude the idea that it is an uh, a boon to the economy like it's still like you know, the attraction of having an out out of state dance company that, you know, you might, one might not typically be able to see, or that you'd have to travel to see like that. People go see the company, then they eat at a restaurant that's by the Mm -hmm. theater, you know, they have to pay for parking. (laughs) They go to the city, like if they're from the suburbs, you know, or whatever, they drive Mm -hmm. an hour into whatever city or bigger area. And then, and maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, exactly. So there is, So much. What do you feel? Do you feel like any of that, those changes? Cause like, it's interesting to hear for us, you know, who mm-hmm. danced in the two thousands. Um, yeah. <laughs> what do you feel like there was a lot of, um, 
union involvement in that too, where it became a little more challenging because there were so many rules as to what the dancers needed in order to travel? Or did it really feel like these budget cuts um, across the country really impacted it mostly? I think it was more budget cuts, yeah. cuts mm-hmm. than um, than union, especially like if, if we're looking at a lot of the modern dance work companies, um, I think two or three of them were actually unionized and the rest, yeah. like Palabas is not a union company. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were not union at all. Paul Taylor's not a union company. Um, right. You know, Merce Cunningham wasn't a union. Like, so mm-hmm. those, for them, I think there's more ballet companies that are union. Uh, we're talking about so many things. I could talk about so many things. That's, but like, hey, we're here. that's great. That's, <laughs> like, we love it. Uh, you know, when you're talking about touring, Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one thing I learned from Palabalus, I learned a lot from Palabalus. I, I very, I watched, I paid attention to like what was going on um, while we were on the tour. And, uh, and we, anyway, God, that's the whole, that's a story in of itself. I mean, because we, <laughs> cause we, we would tour. So at the time that I joined the company was just in their 13th year of existence. 13th or their 14th season, I think right in that bridge period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all the directors were just phasing themselves out. The people mm-hmm. who founded the company and we were, you know, in that first area of permanent young dancers taking over the performing roles. But here you have a company that at the time had five artistic directors and six dancers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what an interesting but, dynamic. Right. <laughs> And, you know, we created work collaboratively. So I learned a lot about the collaborative process, um, how to work with people collaboratively. It came to my attention at that time, 95% of their budget was from touring. Mm-hmm. Like wow. that's where they made their money. Right. And right. the rest at that point, they weren't really pursuing a lot of grants or anything. Right. They were, they, we were ticket working sales. I mean, that's ticket sales and, you know, fees. Um, so, when I started my own company, I realized that what I needed to do was tour in order to generate income. So as I said, some things fell into our place, like getting on the United States information agency's touring list was huge. And that was great for us. Um, uh, And then we picked up an agent in Europe. And so we would go and work in Europe for six to eight weeks in the summer. And then we would go for a couple of weeks in the fall and a couple of weeks in the spring, but that worked like we could perform and work all summer long and save enough money that we could come back to New York and live for another three or four months until our next gig happened right. and, and, and rehearse and make mm-hmm. new work and everything. Um, which was I mean, it's amazing, right? You were like, wow. Mm-hmm. And I get to live this life, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's so cool. You know? um, anyway, when that program stopped in the United States, it put a, that that touring option in the United States just kind of disappeared mm-hmm. to that extent. I mean, there's still companies that tour and there's still some of the big presenters that are presenting work, but like, like they're going everywhere. I mean, right. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, cause with Palavas, I mean, we, under that program, I mean, we would go to s- super small towns in the middle of, you know, uh, the country very much mm-hmm. you know, and way, way out in the country. Right. I mean, right. I mean, I, I can remember we were performing in Iowa and this man came back after the show and he was wearing a flannel shirt and overalls and he'd just come in. He'd been 
farming all day and he'd never seen a dance company and he was just wow. blown away right he's like this is the most amazing thing and i never thought i would really like this and you know Ugh, and, that's so cool and, right and as a dancer that was another profound moment in my life i was like wow Aww. like we're really having an impact right you know, beyond you know right. the, the dance the classic dance audience you know people who right, right, right. really like come to see dance so mm-hmm. Ugh, no, i mean those people need to be served yeah in the same way that anyone in a major metropolis does. Mm-hmm. Like that's, we, yeah. we did some, my, my first year at Miami City Valley was kind of the last year, but we went where we would go to smaller towns. And it was, I mean, it's, of course, it, it may lack the glamour of going to, you know, somewhere like Paris, but it's still <laughs> like, I, I loved it because having been growing up in Kentucky, like it reminded me of mm-hmm. the few dance companies I would get to see. And so we'd be in Iowa or Nebraska or wherever and it was um it was always great to to see like the audience response and to know that you're making an impact that you know uh, a kid growing up in new york city that gets to see everything you may not be as integral to their um like artistic enlightenment yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 and i was one of this i mean i was very lucky at least as far as you know i i uh at the time when I was growing up, the National Ballet was what the, was in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, I can remember my first ballet was Swan Lake, and it blew my mind because of mm-hmm. the second act, the opening of the second act. I still, right. I still, that's like burned on my retina, right? And, <laughs> uh, and as a choreographer, I make reference to that in a couple pieces of choreography. Oh, <laughs> I love like that. Even, even though it's contemporary modern work, I'm like, I still feel like it's, it was just such a strong image. And um, my grandparents lived in New York City, so I got to go see New York City Ballet and ABT, and mm-hmm. they took us to Broadway shows. Um, when I was older, I got to go see Chorus Line when it opened on Broadway. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of th- I was very, I was in a good part of the country to be able to have that, but but also just like you say, but then when you get out to the other parts of the country where people don't have that access, like now I teach in a part of that country where my students mm-hmm. don't have that access mm-hmm. at all. Right. And, um, yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about your your work as a teacher? So you're you're on full time yeah. faculty at um, University of Oklahoma, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So how did that job come about, and why why did that feel like um, like something that appealed to you? Like why does that as a as a dance creator and as a teacher? What about this program was like this is a good fit? Um, working with my company in New York in 1987 is when I made the decision. Anyway, it was just uh, it was getting more difficult. Um, yeah. I actually had a tour where I had hired for the first time because up to that point, my company, whenever I went on tour, I was just inviting friends of mine to come, you know, and mm-hmm. so like we'd go on tour and I'd have somebody who danced with David Parsons, but David was off for so many weeks and they'd come right. or someone who danced with Alvin Ailey and they would mm-hmm. join me and mm-hmm. people from the grant, you know, like it was, and these are all people like I knew, I mean, having yeah. grown up in dance and anyway, I know a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> over over the years right you get to know a lot of people so um so anyway and then i don't know i said oh i'm gonna have an audition so i had an audition i hired some young dancers we went on tour and they just complained the whole time <laughs> those dancers and, the vibe and, wasn't right <laughs> well i don't know you know and like i was like okay I mean, so this is 1997 right and mm-hmm. I thought I was paying them $500 a week. 
Mm-hmm. I was paying them $250 a week per diem and all their travel expenses were taken care of. Like right. what would, if you went on a tour, what would you complain about? Like that's a good layoff gig. Like if you're laid off from another company, that's right? amazing. Yeah. But, but these teenagers, it was like their first job job and they complained right. the whole time. And they were telling me like, well, this isn't how professional companies work. And I'm like, what do you know about how a professional company works? You've never been in one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh my gosh. So, I mean, really like this had a profound effect on me. And I was like, I don't know if I can work with this generation. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, maybe I need to teach this generation. Maybe you need <laughs> so, to shape them. Maybe to instill not some like new values. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that's really, so I was like, okay. So I looked at my options and I thought it'd be better if I had a master's degree. So I went to California Institute of the Arts and I got a master's degree. Um, which was in dance and integrated media. And then after I graduated, I worked at Disney for a year in their DVD production, which was just getting started. I was a production supervisor. Yeah, it was was a really cool job. But (laughs) I was just sitting there and I was like, I really wanted to be back in the studio. So I was Mm -hmm. applying for teaching jobs. I got a bunch of interviews that year. And um, anyway, went out to to Oklahoma, where a friend of mine who had been a principal dancer in the Graham Company was teaching. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the fact that she was there was why I chose to go teach at Oklahoma. Oh, very nice. <laughs> um, you know, because I knew her, I knew her work, I knew what right. she was working towards. We mm-hmm. had the mm-hmm. same idea as far as like how we wanted to bring students up and everything. And um, But then I was there for two years and she left and moved back to New York. And she's now the rehearsal director for the Graham Company. (laughs) Ah, full circle. (laughs) So when you're teaching the new generation, what are a couple of the things like you're mentioning how much the dance field has changed since you were a professional dancer? What are a couple of the things that you really help to instill in your students for them to take with them into their professional careers? I mean... The thing that I hope to instill in my students the most is a work ethic Mm -hmm. because for myself, I, I was not gifted with the perfect dancer body. I mean, I have have super short legs, really long torso. I had to stray feet for four years just to get even the semblance of a good arch. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm very bow legged. Like I had nothing long story short. I learned that if you really work hard, that's mm-hmm. as valuable as having the best technique. And if you can get your foot in the door and people see that you work really hard, that is like the most valuable thing I ever had right, right. As, a, as a dancer. And, mm-hmm. you know, choreographers like to work with people that want to work, right? Directors right. want to work with people that want to work and they want to work correctly. Like you, you go home and you go over your notes and you practice mm-hmm. and you come in the next day and they don't have to give you the same correction the next day and they right. don't have to, you know, and you don't have to go over the same stuff so they can just mm-hmm. keep moving forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is the kind of thing I try to instill in my students. And for me, one of the greatest things, like I had a student who graduated last year, she got a job with a small company in Chicago. And uh, she sent me this email, her director said, sent her and, it was, you know, I wasn't, and she was like, well, I was a little not sure when you were in the audition, you know, but I thought I would take a chance on you. And now I'm so happy you get, cause you work your ass off. She's, oh, like, great. <laughs> yeah. she's like, she's like, you're in there, you're every day, you're taking notes, you come in, like all those things right. I'm talking about. Right. And, 
Time and time again, I have my students will reach out to me and say that type of thing happens with them. And everybody's like, wow, you know, I mean, things like I tell them to write everything down in a notebook. I know some people can just remember choreography. They're brilliant at that. Other people, if you write it down, writing it down helps you remember it. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I had another dancer. She got a job with a company in New York. And, um, you know, the other dancers were kind of making fun of her because she always wrote everything down in her notebook. But it got to a point where like somebody was like, well, the director was like, well, what, what, you know, what did we do here yesterday? And she opened up her notebook. She said, well, we said that on count eight, we did blah, blah, blah. Right. Now, all of a sudden, in one moment, she becomes very valuable to the artistic director. Right? Yep. I always said that Michael and I always say that it's like, you just gotta, even if you aren't good at learning choreography, there's ways to fake it, you know, like there's way, and that's like a faking it is going home and writing it down. Cause it's like an extra thing. Some people can just do it, yeah. but it, knowing your slight weakness in that way and then learning how to change it right. is what matters. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And these were things I did. And so like, I just try to instill it in my, in my students to, yeah. to do the pass same it thing. down, right. yeah. pass it on. So let's um, move on now to the real reason we're here. Um, okay. So this this year was meant to be the inaugural performance of the Oklahoma International Dance Festival. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about what your vision was for the festival and what you had planned for the two weeks? Yes. So um, I wanted, you know, again, I'm teaching in a part of the country, like we were talking earlier, that's really underserved in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Like we don't get to see a lot of dance. There's not any kind of major festival not just in Oklahoma, but the mm-hmm. whole central region of the country, like the surrounding states. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, and every year I send my dancer to the East Coast or West Coast to study in the summer. I was like, you know, we need mm-hmm. to do something like that here in Oklahoma. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been blessed to be working with an international dance festival in Brazil. I started my first year teaching there was 1994 and um, took a few years off, but taught there for quite a while through the 90s took a few years off and went back about seven years ago, I guess. And that just reinvigorated me. And I was like, wow, we should start something like this. So my idea was to start the very beginning. idea was just to start a training. Like it's going to be a a summer intensive international Mm -hmm. dance festival where I was going to bring teachers from all over the world. I want it to be in ballet and modern. Mm -hmm. I know because there's a lot of, you know, yeah, you can go to a lot of intensives that are very ballet focused or a lot of intensives that are very modern focused, but I wanted to be an equal focus on both of them. All the students would have to take a classical ballet technique class and a modern technique class every day. And then after that, their electives would kind of move into Mm -hmm. uh, Gaga or gyrokinesis, um, repertory classes from all the faculty. Um, And then we would have performances. Um, The performances kind of evolved slowly out of it. At first, we were just going to have a gala performance of all the repertory work. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we uh, were going to, then we had the inaugural Native American Dance Company coming to perform. Then um, worked out that we were going to bring Brian Brooks's company. I mean, things just kind of started falling in place. uh, Then Gray Zone from New York, a friend and colleague who was also my student in 1990 when I was, so it's like, uh, 
his name is Rafael Irache, and uh, he's had a quite a wonderful career in Europe. Uh, and uh, he had started a solo choreographic showcase in Torino, where he's from a few years mm. ago. And then he it grew and th they were having it in uh, Frankfurt and Torino. Then he partnered with uh, people in Ankara and he partnered with people in Tel Aviv. And so it like had been growing. So I said, hey, do you want to partner with Oklahoma International Dance Festival? Yeah. yeah. So we, you know, so that kind of came into the festival too. And um, yeah, so all those pieces just fell together, which was great. And uh, and I was just so excited. I mean, I thought we have a really stellar faculty, um, you know, Brian Brooks and Larry Kegwin and uh, Rosaire Munoz, Vincent Gross, uh, Mario Camacho is from the Graham Company, but he teaches in, in code arts in the Netherlands. Rafaele, who I spoke about uh, earlier, Leticia Plans. Anyway, we had all these people coming. I was so excited. Um, and uh, then COVID hit. <laughs> How long were you planning this for? I've been wanting to do it for years. Right, right. Uh, but I just, I, I actually made the decision to go forward about a year ago so mm -hmm. it wasn't that long ago i i some i don't know what happened like so many things something just happened in my life and i remember coming home and saying to my wife i said i'm going to start the dance festival mm -hmm. awesome i said that, that's just i just want to start the dance festival and that was probably in may of last year uh 2019 mm -hmm. and then um of course, so then I said I want to start a dance festival. I spoke to a friend, um, uh, Rebecca Heron, who is a colleague at University of Oklahoma, but she also has an MBA. And I said, hey, do you want to be the executive director? <laughs> and she agreed. And when she agreed to become the executive director, I said, okay, we're going to really have a dance festival. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I uh, couldn't do it without her. She's uh like just like you know Cameron a great addition to, mm -hmm. to the to the team and uh, my wife is I can't do it without her either I mean it's like <laughs> anything I mean you need a lot of you know you need a lot of people to to yeah. to make this possible I mean Tirsa mm -hmm. has designed our website and she like I mean she's just done so much to help keep it going and, and moving forward mm -hmm. um but yeah, so it was that. Then, but then, you know, what did we do? We got on a plane and I left and I was in Barcelona for eight weeks and then from Barcelona to South America and then South America came back and started teaching, right? And in between all of there, we're trying to organize and do stuff from afar and uh, got back this fall and really got our feet on the ground and mm -hmm. uh, started fundraising and marketing. And you know, I, I think, again, that I have an amazing faculty. I mean, Roser and Vincent both danced with the Leipzig Ballet under Uwe Schultz. I don't know if you are familiar with Uwe Schultz, but he's like an amazing, amazing choreographer and uh, created all these works on them. And um, I just thought to bring that experience here to the United States because not a lot of people in the United States are familiar with Uwe's work. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, she's one of the only, Roser's one of the, I think only four people can restage Ubi's work around the world. And she's one of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's been, you know, she was just this year, she was getting ready to go stage a piece on the uh, national ballet of Cuba and the Royal Birmingham ballet. And of course mm -hmm. COVID hit. <laughs> so, you know, um, uh, you know, and Vincent, you know, anyway, they're just Vincent, you know, danced with the Royal ballet and Leipzig ballet and 
um, uh, many others. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so you have this great team, uh, like artistic team. And like, I mean, I think that that's probably like the, like the fun part of the planning, right? You're just like, okay, like a kid in a candy store. It's like, oh, I can have this piece and I want to bring this, these people. And like, oh, I have these mm-hmm. friends that are so talented this way. But what were some of the uh, more difficult components? Things that are like, I, you know, probably just less enjoyable as an artist, like fundraising or like, okay, how do we get the correct venue? And how do we get um, support in this way? Yeah, well, those are all, all of those things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, as far as the venue goes, we've been talking. Uh, so in Oklahoma, they have uh, the Oklahoma Arts Institute, which is mm-hmm. uh, a art, summer arts program for high school students. And it's out at Quartz mm-hmm. Mountain. And it's uh, in the Wichita Mountains. It's beautiful, very remote, two, two hours, two and a half hours away from Oklahoma City. Um, and so they have a facility there. They have a 700-seat theater. They have an amphitheater. They have four beautiful studios that you have to bring in portable floors, but they're, they're like rooms that you can adjust for whatever you want. But they're mm-hmm. set up for dance. They all have some mirrors. But the beauty is that they're in these studios and they have sliding glass doors that open up onto the lake. Oh, beautiful. So you can take class and like look out at the lake, right? And um, anyway, they're set up. They're set up, right? It's designed to host an arts festival already, Mm -hmm. which they do with the high school. So I thought, why not bring another arts festival there at a different time of the year? Um, Mm -hmm. So that the venue was kind of, easier to find um but there's you know you have to negotiate with them trying to get a price point that works you know there's all the financial parts that the hardest part is putting together all the financial pieces um, right, right uh fundraising of course is always a challenge and, and having been the artistic director of dance companies for years i mean it's always a challenge for that as well right so mm-hmm. um the challenge of fundraising i had been used to um I will say though that it has been um, a little less challenging to fundraise for a festival and an educational experience as it is opposed to fundraise just to create and produce your artistic vision. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So COVID hit, as you mentioned, and as we all know, um, how did you decide to shift the festival into what it is going to be? And the dates are July 26th through August 9th. Yes. Um, well, I, w- I was held off until the 1st of June. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the biggest uh, decision to shift was the fact that I was bringing five people from outside of the country and they, and I wasn't going to be able to fly them into the United States. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how can I have an international festival that is, I'm advertising all of these amazing faculty people, but I won't be able to bring more than half of them. Right. Right. Um, and then, you know, I had some people who are from New York and they said, you know, if we come from New York at the moment when they're at the end, they said, like, realistically, we have to come in quarantine for 14 days right, before right. we could actually come. I mean, like right. the, those aspects like really hit me. I was I was hoping 
in March and April that somehow this was going to like be over fast. Right. No, <laughs> but, who wasn't? Who wasn't? <laughs> you know, I was optimistically like, going, okay, we're just going to get through this. It's going to be we okay. We're going to get back. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. We have time. Right. But uh, that isn't what happened. And so, yeah, I just felt like I, you know, since I can't bring the teachers to the students, I thought, okay, we can go online. I've been teaching zoom classes for the university. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, I've been watching other people do Zoom classes and Instagram live classes. And, and I thought, all right, well, if we go online, I can still keep the faculty. Everybody can mm-hmm. still have that experience, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can bring them the festival that way. So that was kind of that shift in thinking was was logistics and 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 that. Um, and it's a, then it's been a scramble, right? I mean, because there's a lot of other issues that we're trying to work out. We need to make sure we have really high band, you know, just all the technical issues to be able right, to right. Zoom correctly. Um, the other part, though, from watching a lot of Zoom classes and teaching a lot of Zoom classes, I made a strong decision to limit the class size to 14 dancers. I love um, that. Yeah. And, you know, from a financial point of view, maybe that's not, the like you know the best way to move forward but at the, anyway this is the artist and the teacher part of me saying if mm-hmm. i want to give people the best value i can think to give them then we have to limit the class size because i know as a teacher when my class gets too big on the zoom screen it becomes it becomes too difficult right those squares are and too small and you they can't are write, small <laughs> you know right exactly and so i thought if we limit it to 14 you know, mm-hmm. the teacher's 15, that's three rows of five, right. and they're they're not as small, but also there's just less people for you to try to keep track yeah. of as a yeah, teacher, yeah. and I thought it'll, it will create a more personal experience, even mm-hmm. though it's through through Zoom, um, and, you know, I'm sticking with that 14, mm-hmm. <laughs> while there, there's been some, you know, anyway some suggestions that we change that number, but I'm, I'm adamant about that. sticking to your guns. Yeah. yeah. Well, because I, I want the students that come to the festival to have, you know, a good experience mm-hmm. and not be one of, you know, 35, 40, 50 people. And you have two zoom screens and you're going back, you know, it's, it's just it's too much. Right. 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 Yeah. So if students want to sign up, they have until July 15th. Um, yeah. How can they, how can they sign up? They can go to okdancefest.org, um, mm-hmm. and then there are links there to to sign up for the festival. Um, all the students have to submit a video, and that video is not for acceptance. Like as soon as you sign up, you'll be you're accepted to the right. festival. Mm-hmm. But the videos are for placement because sure. we are going to have different levels, and we want to try to make sure again that the students are in a class of with their peers that are of the same level. And again, so the teacher then can consistently help that class move forward. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I taught some Zoom classes for people that had 11-year-olds all the way up through 26-year-olds, all in the oh same class. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, this is just too, like, it, too that, broad of a range. Right, right? It's too broad of a range Ooh, again, yes. right? So, so we are asking for the videos just to help um, yeah. to place people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, I think great. it sounds like a wonderful opportunity. And especially right now, while there are options, you know, that this it, this is a very special time in a way to be able to train from so many dancers all across the world like you have um, there at the festival. And I think that 
like you said too, this is a way to reach out to kids who maybe wouldn't have been able to be a part of the festival financially or whatever. You know, this is a way to be to reach more people and really spread some joy of dance right now. We all need it. <laughs> I, 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 I hope that it is right. Yeah. And, and it, it actually, yeah. In that uh, sentiment, right. I mean, it's only $600 to come take four classes a day for two weeks. And, and if, wow. You know, which is, I feel like a really good value. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we're going to, you- in New York, classes are twenty-two dollars a class, class. So for one for one and a half hours. So yeah. right, you no, know. yeah. God, classes have gone up. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> well, I I just think it's a, such a great program that you're offering, and hopefully next year, um, you'll get to have the performing component that you had dreamt up and lined up for the festival. Um, and we really look forward to um, seeing how things go with that as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank I, you so much, you Austin. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you for joining us this week. If you would like to support the Conversations on Dance podcast, there are a few ways that you can help. Click over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Download episodes when you listen to allow our analytics to better understand our listenership. Join our Facebook group, Conversations on Dance, Friends of the Pod, or you can offer a donation. Conversations on Dance has always been and will always be free to our listeners. You can help us continue to create and produce this unique behind-the-curtain look at the dance world by visiting conversationsondancepod.com support. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.